everybody together? Yeah, it's awesome. Before you're seated, let's pray together. God, I just know around the room right now that we have people in all kinds of circumstances and situations, and we've sung songs today about trusting you and life looks difficult and that you have all things in control. And Lord, that even in seasons that we dislike, hate, that you are faithful. Lord, I know there are people in those seasons. And so I just pray today that just in this time that you would comfort and strengthen and that your presence would be so real. You are our hope. You are our rescue. I pray now for all of us that we would, and it's just this time right now, that we would experience your love as we sing about and uh, uh, as we talk about something that's going to not feel like love today that we would realize that it comes straight from your heart. It's all about love. May we embrace that. May we hear your words, each of us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So if you go ahead and have a seat, that would be wonderful. And as you're doing that, just look in your program, if you would. Pull out two things. One would be your message notes, and the other would be your connection card. Uh, We're going to refer to the connection card and draw your attention to that in just a little bit. But your message notes you'll need so that you can follow along and take notes. You have your Bible. You can open it to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to jump back in where we were before Mother's Day. We took a little break for Mother's Day and went back to just one verse in Galatians. Um, Galatians 3, beginning in verse 14. If you don't own a Bible, please take one as a gift from us today. You'll find the bookshelf in the lobby with Bibles on it. It'll be our gift. Just love you to have a Bible in your home as well to be able to read and to learn. So uh, Mark and I were talking this week, Mark Hadley, he is our grow pastor and groups pastor, and he's responsible for the team that writes the stuff in the middle, the homework, and uh, for those of you who do message-based groups, my group that I'm part of does a message-based group, and so I poked my head in his office this week, and he said, he said, you know, Galatians is getting hard on my homework team. And, uh, and what he meant was is that it, it just cycled through the same things over and over again, it feels like. And so I just looked at him and I said, you ought to be the one speaking about this, okay? And uh, because that's what Paul has done is he's just circled through some, same, some similar thoughts again and again and again. And we're going to come to another one of those places today, only it comes at it from a way that I found so exhilarating and I hope that you do as well. But I also found it intimidating. Here's how I found it intimidating. When I started my research, I started reading things written by commentators and by Bible scholars and by pastors. And they said that this section of Galatians that we're looking at today is the most difficult. Like, okay, God, I need your help, okay? Because I'm just a simple guy from Oklahoma, and I need your help if I'm going to be able to pull this off. I don't have a lot of initials after my name. And so uh, just we're going to do this under the power of the Spirit today. And I know that he's there because the first service was just incredible, the experience that we had together. So this book of the Bible called Galatians, it was written to a group of people, and they were in danger of substituting faith in Jesus alone, Jesus alone, with a faith that says Jesus plus works or duty or effort is required to gain acceptance by God. So just kind of, you know, give us a, you know, a little overview here of why this book was actually written. So the big struggle found its source in the fact that Christianity's earliest followers, they came out of the Jewish tradition. 
and these early followers of Jesus, as they were actually switching faiths, as they were actually changing their beliefs, they were having a hard time believing that they could or should give up their Jewish rules and regulations, especially those concerning the ceremonial laws. And we made a big you know, deal about circumcision being one of those. And so they were making a big deal saying that those who were coming to faith, Gentiles, that they should observe all the ceremonial laws and rules, including circumcision. Now, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book, and then also those early followers of Jesus, they were coming under pressure from this group that Paul labeled as the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were the people who were saying that in order to please God, and I'll just add on, and others, that you still needed to observe these ceremonial laws. And what Paul is making clear, this is a letter of very strong correction, and he was making it very clear. We've said this several times, but if this is your first time, I want you to be able to hear this so that you can feel like you're right up with the rest of us as we're going through this. Jesus plus something equals nothing every time. That's what he wanted them to know. Jesus plus something equals nothing every time. And he said, instead, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It means equals everything. And in this series, what we've done is we've just talked about how each of us can fall into this tendency or this trap uh, to fail to believe that believing is enough, that believing is enough without adding performance as a way that I'm going to gain acceptance or approval. See, folks, believing that our acceptance or approval is the result of our works or efforts, what the reason this series is so important for me and what I think is so important for our church is that if I believe that my acceptance is based upon or my approval is based upon my behavior or my efforts or my works, what that does is it robs the joy the joy out of the church. And it makes followers of Jesus look like driven, sad, insecure people. And, you know, I just know that when those who don't go to church, when they look at followers of Jesus many times, because churches across our land end up without, if they're not careful, they can end up in this trap of believing that it's about performance. And then their people end up, as I just described, driven, sad, and insecure. So if you're outside, you're looking in, you think, why would I want that? Everybody there is driven. Everybody there looks like, you know, they've been eating lemons. And so they're all sourpusses and they're all sad or they're all insecure in some way. Uh, And so we want to say, no, we want to be the best representative of Jesus that we can be in a positive way. But not only that, but thinking, but that kind of thinking, it be, if it becomes part of the message of faith in Jesus, as we've talked about in this series, what will happen is, is that we will end up proclaiming a false gospel that will be unable to save men and women. Because we, if we make it be about works as being and getting our approval. So if you look at the top of your notes, that just kind of sets us up today. Uh, recount a little bit why we're going. If you're here for the first time, I hope that helped. First time at the top of your notes is the theme verse, Galatians 5.1. And I'm going to ask, let's read it out loud together. Be on the screens. You have it on your notes as well. Ready, go. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery was the belief that I, my works were get, what gained approval 
by God. And so we've been set free by grace from that belief. And he's saying, there's a danger that you're going to go back again into that yoke of slavery. And so what Paul is doing in Galatians, he's literally taking us back to the basics of the Christian faith. And the key foundation of the Christian faith is grace. The message of Galatians is this. God has set you free by grace. Now live free. Pursue the grace life and all that that means. And and what we've learned in this series is that grace is for unbelievers because it allows unbelievers to know God and experience him and his love. But what we've also learned is that grace is for believers because it helps those who are believers to have the power or the energy or the motivation to be able to pursue the grace life, to live the life that God wants us to be and actually grow to become like Jesus. So here's the deal. Grace is the root of the gospel. Grace is the root of the gospel. And then what we experience, and a few weeks we're going to talk about this on Father's Day, as we let our roots go down deep in grace, then what we experience is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's the fruit. But it's because I have my root in the grace that I'm able to experience this fruit. But here's the deal. And this is why Paul was writing so, I, I would say, angrily and pointedly to these Galatian followers of Jesus. He wanted them to remember religion is the enemy of the gospel. Religion is the enemy of the gospel. So what Paul is doing in the four chapters uh, that we are just ready, next week we move into chapter four, but in these four chapters, what he's doing is he's warning his readers, and that would be us as we read this, about the dangers that you and I would make Christianity about following rules and regulations. He's warning them about legalism, a legalism that results in religious practices. So religion says, religion says that performance equals reward. So as you perform, as you do the duties, as you you mark them off, that you've done this, that that equals some kind of reward. Religion leads us to relate to God based upon our behavior and our performance. And what happens if we are basing our relationship with God on our behavior or performance is that we lose the ability to have relationship with God or intimacy with him. Because we're so caught up in this thing that our efforts earn our, are in his favor that we can never rest in relationship or intimacy. When in fact, <laughs> our efforts alone will keep us from knowing God and living intimacy with him through Jesus. So you see why Paul was so strong and why it's so important that we understand this. See, folks, this is what makes Christianity unique from every other religion or belief. This is what makes us free. We are free in Jesus to fail, to succeed, to win, to lose, to celebrate, and to grieve. Grace makes us free. It sets us free. And that freedom, when we experience that, that's what allows us to love God and love people. And that's something that we must fight to maintain, fight to hold on to and hold dear. So grace frees us. And then religion, with its rules and regulations, enslaves us, enslaves us. And we're going to talk about being free today. So what I want to do is I'm going to dig deeper into this danger of believing that obeying the law, we're going to talk about what the law is in a minute, that obeying the law was part of God's plan 
for helping us overcome our sin problems and then establish a relationship with him. So we're going to look at three ideas. We're going to look at these verses. I'm going to talk about them as we go and help us to understand what Paul was talking about and how that relates to us as well. Okay, first, freedom is made possible when I understand the promise of grace. When I understand the promise of grace. So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at two covenants, two different places where uh, God spoke and he said, you know, this is what's going to happen. And then how these two covenants, as they became the primary covenants of the Jewish faith and tradition, and, but also became the foundation for the Christian faith and in our tradition as well. So God gave the promise. The first one we're going to look at, he gave it to Abraham. And so you can read about this in Genesis 12. You can read about it specifically in Genesis 15. I put a reference there. You can see down a little ways on your notes that you can read about it. But I want to begin with verse 14 in Galatians 3. And this is what it says. It's been talking about Abraham and how Jesus was the uh, source of justification or being made right with God. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So it's through Jesus that now the faith has moved from being about the Jewish people to now it's spreading out into those who are non-Jewish or Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example... Even a man-made covenant with no, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So, uh, what I wanted you to do is just underline that phrase "man-made covenant." There, man-made covenant. See, a covenant was an agreement that was drawn up between two parties that required each party under obligation to act in a certain way. And so, when Paul is using the word here for covenant in Galatians. He uses the word that was also used that when you make a will, your last will and testament. And what Paul is saying is that when a will is signed and certified, that nothing can change that will after the person who made it has, been, has died. Nothing can change it. And so just an example would be that you have a family and you have uh, a dad and you have two daughters. And so you have one daughter... Um, who's had uh, just a string of series of bad luck incidents and, uh, act, and ends up in a place of having very little material in life. You have the other daughter who seemed to be on just the opposite track and ended up having a life full of material and you know, financial blessings. And so the dad, as he's making his will and testament, he looks and says that those two daughters, you know what, the, my daughter who's had you know, things go her way, she doesn't need as much as my, of my estate as my daughter who's had a rough time. So I'm going to will more of my estate to my daughter who's had it rough than I am to my daughter who has it better. And so he dies. And the day after he dies, the daughter who's had it going so well, something happens, a catastrophe, and she loses everything. Now, everyone knew the dad's desire. The dad's desire was that, that he would help this daughter because she didn't have as much, uh, but now this daughter doesn't have as much either. Does that change his will? The answer is no. You cannot annul the will after the person has died. So they could maybe make some arrangements, but the will still goes on as it was written, as it was given. So the deal is this. Why does this make so much important? You know, uh, why is it so important for us? Is that God has bound himself to a covenant when it comes to humanity, and because he's bound himself, he cannot act in any other manner. So then Paul goes on to describe two different ways that God relates to us through covenant. 
The first was the covenant that was given to Abraham through promise. And so this was about promise. And then the second covenant that was given to Moses, we're going to look at this in a minute, 430 years later was given about action or behavior. So God said to Abraham, I'm going to make a promise that you will become a great nation and through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Okay, so let's look at verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings. Now, I, I know the Bible and the, the grammar's there, but my you know, word processor wouldn't let me put offsprings here without a red line under it every time. Okay, so it must not be a word, but it is there. And the offsprings, and so I think we get the point, it's many people referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. So the promise is about the offspring, and then Paul makes it clear the offspring was the promise of Christ. That's the seed, the promise of Christ. It doesn't say many seeds. It doesn't say offsprings. It says seed or offspring. So he's not talking about the fact that Abraham would be the father of a nation, which he was, and said to be counted as many you know, sands on the sea. But he was talking specifically here about the fact that the promise was about one person, a seed that would come, that would be the promised one, that would be given so that we could be made right with God by faith. So the whole idea we talked a few weeks ago about justification, right with God by faith, that was first presented in Genesis 15. And we looked about the promise was given to him. So then he compares, okay, there's that covenant that was given to Abraham. Now he compares it to the covenant that was given to Moses. And he says this, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So what Paul wants us to know is that in Jesus, that we have been, the promise about Jesus was an unbreakable promise. And in order to make the point that it was by justification or by faith alone, that we were made right in God and not by works, he compares these two covenants, and everyone in his day would know what these two covenants were and what they said. Probably less so in our day. That's why I get to explain it just a little bit further for us. So we have the covenant made with Abraham, and we have the covenant between God and Moses. So then 430 years after Abraham, God makes this covenant with Moses, and previously he said, through Abraham, a seed will come, and through that seed, people will be made right with God. Then after that, he gives Moses the law. He gives Moses a covenant, and it shows... So the first covenant showed that we'd be made right with God by faith. The second covenant shows what is expected from them in the way of behavior. So what's expected from them in the way of behavior. Now, I put the references again so you can read about those covenants and what they say. Just remember this. God's promise of righteousness, being made right with him, was based upon a commitment that we would make through faith. And it came before the commands about the law were given. And he said, this covenant in no way annuls this covenant. This covenant was made first. It precedes it. And it cannot be changed. It cannot be annulled. And so... What we look at is we look at the difference between the two covenants. So now I just wanted you to just write this down, fill these blanks in about promises and then about laws. Promises 
highlight the work of God. So here's what God's going to do. That's what the promise did. And so grace is about the promise of God. And so here's the statement with the promise. It's God saying, I will, I will, I will. I will, I will, I will. I will, you can count, I will, I will. This is what I'm going to do, and nothing can change it. Whereas laws highlight the work of man, kind or people, highlights the work of man. Legalism is about the performance of man. And the voice of the law is, you must, you must, you must. You must, you must, you must. And you can add must not if you wanted to, but it's you must, you must, you must. And so you have to ask yourself, which one am I going to focus on? Am I going to focus on God's promise or am I going to focus on my performance? And there's a huge difference between the results of where you focus of your you know, eternity, but as well as your life after Jesus. Okay, second idea is this. Freedom is made possible when I embrace the purpose of the law. So we're going to spend most of our time right here. We're going to talk about the purpose of the law. I mean, we know that we talked about the purpose of the promise a lot when we talked a few weeks ago about justification, but now we're going to talk about the law because this was the danger, is that we, they were going to give themselves over to the law, and I'd say this is a danger for us as well. So he starts with a question, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. You circle that word transgressions. I'll come back and tell you what that means in just a minute. Until the offspring, Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary? This is the great question. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Exclamation point. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, this is what's so cool. We're going to look at it in a little bit. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So I'm going to help us out by walking through this and talking about what the law actually does for us. I'm going to give you four purposes of the law, uh, and we're going to walk through this. And the first is this, the law restrains us from sin. So the law being the Ten Commandments. So let's just you know, keep it that simple. The law being the Ten Commandments restrains us from sin. John Calvin, when he was talking about the law, that he used the, the, the analogy that the law is like a mirror, and he's going to talk about it in two different ways. And so the first way that the law is like a mirror is that he said the mirror reflects to us the character of God. So it's as if God is looking in the mirror, and what we see is the character of God. So that's what we see in the first mirror. So we understand if, if that's the case, what we understand is we understand God's character. We understand what God is like by studying the law because that reflects his character. When we understand this character of God, as we look at his laws, then what we know is that every one of his laws tells us something about his heart. It tells us something about his character. The law shows us the righteous perfection of a holy God. So when I look at the law and I have this reflected to me, it's showing me exactly what God is like. Why do I need this? Because as we're going to look at in a little bit, is that if I see exactly what God is like, and that's the reflection, and now I put my face in this and I see what I'm like, guess who doesn't measure up? Me. 
It shows me how much I don't measure up to the holiness, the righteousness of God. Now, he does all this because he loves us. Just so you know that. He loves us. So when the law was given, what it does is it reveals God's will to us. It reveals God's person to us. And therefore, we know that whenever we violate it, so here's the deal, whenever we violate the law, that we have gone against the will of God, that we've gone against the character of God. We have rebelled against his rightful authority over our lives. But at the same time, the law doesn't ultimately deal with it. It restrains it. So you know the law, but you guys all know that when you know the law, it doesn't actually restrain you from breaking it, right? Uh, so, you know, in our home... I know that, you know, so your home's probably the same way. So you have 10 pieces of candy, and you say you can only have one, and you leave the room, you come back, and there's five gone. How'd that happen? I don't know. It just seems to work that way. So you just realize. And so, you know, you go into a bedroom, and, you know, you've been told about, you know, dietary restrictions, and, and you go in there, and you find empty bags, you know, chip bags and candy bags and all those kinds of things. I, my family used to tease me that they'd go to my car and they'd find empty donut bags stuck under all the seats and everything as I'm trying to hide my sin. Uh, but I've given that one up. I've replaced it with others, but I gave that one up for sure. Uh, but here's the deal. Laws can only restrain you to a point. And that's the whole idea. They can only restrain you to a point. And uh, because sin is both a matter of behavior and heart. And so if I'm not alignment, you know, if I'm not surrendered to what God has said, well, I'm going to rebel against it and move away. So that's not the only thing the law does. Second, the law defines sin. So if there's ever any confusion about what sin is, the law defines it. It defines sin by exposing, this is what's so cool, by exposing the heart of God. That's how it defines sin. And pointing out that anything other than the heart or the character of God is sin. Now, Paul said that when we give into sin, that we have transgressed or transgression. So the idea of that is that there's a track, it's like a railroad track, you've got two rails going along, and that when you live life and you stay on the track that you're in God's will, and, but when you get outside of one of the rails that you have transgressed, you've stepped outside of his will, and the Bible tells us that all of us have sinned. So we've all stepped outside. We've all transgressed. And here's the deal. The law is the track. The law, the rails, the law. So it shows us where we should walk, where we should go, and that leads us to the character of God. That leads us to relationship with him. The law's entire goal is to expose sin and help us understand what sin is by showing us our inability to be perfect. Our inability to be perfect. Without the law, we wouldn't know what actions we do or thoughts we have that are sin. And folks, I'll just tell you, this is why I believe that, you know, as I was studying for this talk, I was just, you know, I thought, Lord, help me. I'm going to allow your Holy Spirit to make application to culture today. But this is why I feel that culture today does everything it can to take the Bible out of life and to make spirituality to be about your personal preference. Because if it, the Bible can be taken out of life and it can be about personal preference, then what we have is we have no standard. We don't have God's standard anymore for sin, for right and wrong. And God calls us to live in the tracks. He calls us to live inside of those. He defines sin. 
Romans 3.20 says that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I experienced that. If we didn't have the law, folks, we wouldn't know what sin was. And some of you are going, well, wouldn't that be great not to know what sin was, right? Wouldn't, they, wouldn't you think that's the way God would make it work? No, because he wants us to know what's keeping us from being in relationship with him because he, wants, because he loves us too much to allow us to do that. Okay, number three, the law reveals sin, reveals sin. So that's the second idea of the mirror here from John Calvin, is that the law as a mirror is reflecting to me the character of God, but then when I look at it, it reveals my character. It reveals where I don't meet the character of God, where I don't meet the rules that he's put into place, where I don't meet, where I'm not like him. The law actually shows us our rebellion to God. It was given to show how truly sinful we are at the core. So when God added the laws, the Bible says it multiplied our transgressions. It's like, wow, just mind-boggling when you think about this. Because if I wasn't making up a religion, I would make it be all about the promise. And I would make sure that no one ever felt bad. But what God says is, no, I have made a promise And then I've given you the law to show you where you don't meet my standards because you can't be in my family apart from meeting my standards. And that's why he gave Jesus to bridge the gap between where I am and where he is in his beautiful, you know, his his righteousness. Now, Paul, as he's writing this, he may be remembering his own life. Romans 7 uh, is a great example of this, and so you might want to read this sometime. Romans 7, I think verse 7 and 8, is this is what it says. This may be 8 and 9, I'm not sure. This is what it says. Paul's writing, and he says this. If it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. So in other words, he was coveting, but he wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the Bible says, thou shalt not covet, is what he says. So the law reveals, and maybe I should have said instead of sin, it reveals my sin, and it reveals your sin, because that's what the law shows us. He realized that he was not simply a sinner, but actually he was a prisoner of sin, helpless to free or to cure himself. So folks, without the law, we wouldn't know what it is that's separating us from God, and God loves us too much to be in that kind of arrangement or relationship because he wants us to be with him. So when you think about that, our world wants everyone, this is what our world wants the categories to be, good people and bad people, good people and bad people. So I'm looking around, am I good or am I bad? God says the world is perfect and imperfect. It's not good people or bad people. We all want to be in that kind of world because we can all figure out a way to make ourselves better than someone else, right? That we're not so bad. But God wants us to realize, no, the standards are perfect and imperfect. That's the standard. You're either perfect or you're not perfect. And that's what the law shows us. And if you don't have the law, I tell you, you can believe you're better than you really are, right? Every one of us can. If we didn't have the law, the law is a a gift to show us that we are in sin. Now, this is what John Stott says uh, about this whole idea. He says, the purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of our respectability. In other words, believing that I'm better than I am, my respectability, and disclose what we really are underneath. And here's what we are underneath. 
sinful, rebellious, guilty under God's judgment and helpless to free ourselves. So that's what the law shows us. I, when I get in a little while, you're going to see why it's so important that we understand this. But the message of the law is obey, is obey me. The realization of humanity is we can't. And that's why we need this the last idea of this whole thing is the most important is the law then leads us to Jesus. All of this is just to say then the law leads us to Jesus. The law, even I would just say it a better way, drives us to Jesus, drives us to him. See, if you only listen to the law with one ear and you're just kind of, you know, halfway paying attention, what the law will do is it will drive you to do more, do more, do more in order to please God. Or it will drive you to rebel and turn away from God because you're only listening to it partially. But if you listen to the law with both ears, the law will lead you, draw you, pull you to the only solution. And that solution is Jesus. The only place. Okay, last idea is this, and we'll wrap up. Freedom is made possible when I resist the pull of legalism. So when I, you know, the pull is to give myself over to pursuing the law and then to become legalistic about following rules and regulations. So the Bible says, the law reveals your identity. The law tells us, I'm a sinner, and that's a term of endearment, and you cannot change through your own efforts or your own beliefs. You can only be changed by God's grace acting on your behalf and in your favor. Okay, verse 23. I'm going to have you underline and circle some words as we go through. Now, before the faith came, we were held captive, circle that, captive, under the law, imprisoned, circle that, imprisoned, until the coming faith could be, would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, circle that, until Christ came. In order, now here's what happens. So we were what? We were prisoners, we were captives, and we had guardian, a guardian. Now, that word guardian, uh, it was a word that means uh, like a... Some places it's translated as tutor, uh, T-U-T-O-R. Some places translated as master, schoolmaster, slave master. Basically, what it was was saying in the home, uh, and the, uh, the in the homes of this day, there would be a slave who was the, you know designated to raise the kids, and so they were underneath the slave the entire time of their existence of growing up. So they were under, they were imprisoned by this guardian. He was also saying that the law is, it's, it's like a, it's like a, uh, a strong man and it's holding us captive. And so we, until we know Jesus, that we are held captive and imprisoned by the law. And what happens is folks is when, what happens here is that when we get all confused and we say, we switch these around and that's what, that's what Paul was writing. This is what was happening. So we got the covenant about the law, and we've got the promise by grace. And what they were doing and what the danger is for us, which leads to legalism, is when we switch these around and we make the covenant be primary, the law be primary as a means to grace. But what Paul is saying is the promise, the means of grace is primary. And then that leads us because we realize our condition we realize the law showed us what we truly are. We realize God's righteousness. And because of Jesus, we now 
can be brought into his family. We're going to talk about that next week. Brought into his family. And now because of that relationship, I look at this. It's God's requirements, behaviors. And now it's no, I, I meant to, didn't mean to say it. it's not a requirement anymore. It's actually a privilege. I have the privilege of living by the law, not as a means of approval, but out of gratitude for the love that I have for Jesus, for what he's done for me. So that's the whole idea of what he wants to get across and the whole idea of what I want to get across today. And now I want to say something. You know, I just want to, I don't know, I felt the Holy Spirit leading me to say this. And so um, you can take it just if you feel like this works for you uh, or it's meaningful for you. But I just want to say this. I just want to go on record today and say that if you, have, if you feel or have felt at any time that anyone here at Twin Cities Church has made it seem to you that following certain rules would get you to be more acceptable to us or to God, I'm sorry. I just want you to know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I've ever, ever given you the impression that you needed to do anything in order to please God or please me or please this church. Instead, our message is, wow, because of the love he's shown us, because of grace, now obedience takes on a whole nother meaning. Where Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And now I want to be underneath his umbrella of authority, underneath his umbrella of obedience, because I know how much he loves me. I do this out of a sense of gratitude. Now, Andrew Jukes, now remember I told you I like to go to people who live out of our culture uh, in different age because they speak truth in a way that's not culturally influenced. Andrew Jukes says this. He says, Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law. So this is a spiritual deal, which God gave to prove us sinners. So Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law. So he wants us to switch it. And God says, no, I have given you grace. And I've given you the law to prove that you needed grace, that prove that you are a sinner. So I just want to end with this quote from Tim Keller. It's on your notes, but it'll be on the screens, and then we'll pray after this. Tim is an amazing thinker. He says this, law and grace work together in Christian salvation. Many people want a sense of joy and acceptance, right? And we all want come to church, and it's all about joy, and it's all about acceptance. We want that. But notice this, but they will not admit the seriousness of their sin. They will not listen to the law's searching, painful analysis of their lives and hearts. But unless we see how helpless and profoundly sinful we are, the message of salvation will not be exhilarating or liberating. Unless we know how big our debt is, we cannot have any idea how great Christ's payment was. If we do not think we are all that bad... The idea of grace will not change us. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much 
that you led us to Galatians. You led us to this passage so that we could be clear about the purpose of the law. And we could be clear about the purpose of grace, of the promise. And Lord, today, I know there are people wrestling with this because we all want you to be this grandfather God of love who accepts everyone. But that's not who you are. You're a God of love who is holy and righteous. And that you have a way that you want us to live and you have a way to acceptance. And it's either to be perfect or to be made perfect by Jesus. I thank you for Jesus. And so I pray now for everyone in the room, the people who have never said yes to Jesus before, never understood it enough to say yes, that they would say yes today. So if you'd like to, just inside yourself, you can pray, Jesus, as much as I understand this today, I am a sinner. Jesus, I need you. I want to accept what you did on the cross for me. I want to be clean and forgiven. And now, Jesus, I surrender to living my life according to your standards. I submit to you. I turn my life over to you that I might live in true joy, true love, truly experiencing all that you offer and all that you give. God, I pray for all of us in the room now. Uh, Just a reminder of this. I'm hoping today has given some a new sense of excitement about their faith, about what Jesus did. I pray, God, that we would know how much you love us and how much you want us to be in relationship and how exciting that is to be with you. And then, God, I pray that you would help us as we walk around in culture as followers of Jesus, that we would truly represent you, represent your love, that we'd be examples of people who walk in obedience to what you've called us to do and who you've called us to be. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.